You're listening to the Lord's Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we learn how prayer brings peace and power into the daily parts of our lives. We'll explore this through the most famous prayer in Scripture, the words that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. Good morning. Peace be with you. It's great to be back with you. My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn East, and every summer I'm given an extended time out of the pulpit to get some rest, to reflect, and to read. And I just want to say thank you to you for that. I'm grateful to be a part of a church that, that cares about not just a pastor's theology or their proficiency, but also their health and the health of their soul. I want to thank Pastors Brian and Chad and Dr. Pennington for filling the pulpit while I was away with amazing preaching. My only fear every summer is I come back and I don't have a job. Uh, because they're such great preachers. Uh, it, was, it was such a joy to be here and to not preach for a little bit. And while I'm always excited for time away, I'm also really eager to get back. And I've never been more eager than I am today. Uh, this past year, our board of directors and our elders, we spent dozens upon dozens of hours reflecting on our church, our strengths, our weaknesses, reflecting on this cultural moment we find ourselves in and asking the question, where does God want us to grow? Where might he be leading us in the years to come? And we we tossed around a bunch of ideas. We shared a bunch of different passions and things that we were seeing. But in the end, after a whole lot of discussion, we all came down to a unanimous agreement that where God is calling us to grow is prayer. And that while our church has been very strong in a lot of things throughout the years, I would never say that Sojourn was a church that was very strong in prayer. We've never been known as a praying church. And so we made the decision that starting today, August 11th, and following the course of this school year calendar, basically, we wanted to devote one year to really growing and deepening in prayer as individuals and as a community. And so we're kind of like jacking up the house, and we're seeking to put in some, some new pillars, some new foundations to build upon. And so everything we do, every dimension of our church, we're seeking to infuse a deeper and greater emphasis on prayer from our Sunday gatherings to our groups, to mercy and community outreach, to evangelism, sojourn kids, S2. We have prayer and worship nights. We're opening a prayer room. We want to be a church that grows and deepens in prayer. And I'm convinced that this is probably the most ambitious initiative we've ever set out to achieve. Because prayer is hard. And I know that we're in different places, and some of you are like, no, it's not. Prayer is easy. I love praying. You, you are the exception to the rule, I would guess. I think most of us, we struggle with prayer. We struggle to make time for prayer. When we do pray, our prayers often feel clumsy, shallow. And instead of prayer being this source of supernatural power and peace, it's oftentimes a source of frustration and confusion. And then we read about saints of old, these inspiring stories about their prayer lives where they would literally wear grooves in their hardwood floors because they would be on their knees every morning for hours. And that's inspiring, but it's 
also a bit discouraging because we pray for 10 minutes and it feels like four hours. You know, John Wesley, he once said he has a very low view of any Christian who doesn't spend four hours a day in prayer. Thank goodness we're not Methodists. Amen? (laughs) But we read things like that, and what it does, I think, is it stirs in us that there's something profoundly wrong with us. And while I do think that we have things that need to be addressed, I don't want to be naive about the challenges of prayer. I came across this from C.S. Lewis, resonated a lot more with me than the quote from John Wesley. In his letters to Malcolm, he writes, Let's come clean. Prayer is irksome. It's difficult. An excuse to omit it is never unwelcome. When it is over, this casts a feeling of relief and a holiday over the rest of the day. We're reluctant to begin. We're delighted to finish while we are at prayer. Any trifle is enough to distract us. The odd thing is that this reluctance to pray is not confined to periods of dryness. When yesterday's prayers were full of comfort and exaltation, Today's will still be felt as, in some degree, a burden. I haven't any language weak enough to depict the weakness of my spiritual life. Maybe you can relate. I know I can. I love the idea of prayer. I love planning to pray. I love buying a journal to write out prayers. I love carving aside time. But when I go to pray, it's still challenging. It's hard. And when we, compat, when we contrast our struggles to pray with Jesus' life, the discrepancy, you know, the, the gap, it's massive. As we've been going through Matthew, as I've spent a lot of time in the Gospels looking at Jesus, and one of the things I've noticed again and again is that Jesus was always praying. Before every major event in his life, he was praying. In the hardest moments of his life, he was praying. He was praying with people. He was praying alone. And it was never an afterthought for him. It was, it was this top priority of his. He would have crowds of people who traveled vast distances to come be healed by him. And they would be waiting in line just for Jesus to heal them. And there were times when Jesus said, I'm sorry, I know, but I've got, I've got to go pray. And he would leave the crowds. Some days he was so busy all day, he had to be physically exhausted, but more important than sleep was getting time with his father. And so he would go and pray all night. And on top of all of this, it never seems like prayer was an obligation or just a duty or a drag for Jesus. It never seems like he's like, on top of everything else I'm doing, now i got to find out time to pray? This is exhausting. It's too much. It seems like something that he ran to that brought him great life and power and peace. And so I've been wrestling with this question, what did he know that we don't know? What did he understand that we don't fully understand? And we're not the, I'm not the only one who asked that question. The disciples, men who spent every waking moment and sleeping moment with Jesus for years, they prayed with him, they watched him pray. It's one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament, Luke 11, 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So they'd watched him, they prayed with him, and they knew that there was something Jesus knew that they didn't really get. 
And I love how, I love the anonymity of the verse. You know, whoever it was was like, can you just say one of us asked him? But one of them finally said, all right, Jesus, what gives? What do you know that we don't know? And Jesus doesn't respond by giving them strategies for prayer or techniques for prayer. Jesus responds by giving them a prayer. And he says, here's the prayer, pray this. And when Jesus said pray this, I think he meant we should pray the Lord's Prayer regularly. I also think that the Lord's Prayer should and can serve as a pattern for all of our prayers. And I've I preached on this a few months ago. What I want to do is I want to come back and I want to give a little more time to it because I've been praying this prayer pretty much every day for the last seven, eight months oftentimes multiple times a day. I've been using it as a guide for prayer. And I would say that it's unlocked prayer in a new way for me. That it's, it's really transformed my prayer life, and I think I'm still in that process. And I, I, I'm convinced this is the greatest prayer. I mean, that's a weird thing to say, but I think it's the greatest prayer we've ever been given. It's the one Jesus said, you want to know how to pray? Here you go. In my study, I was researching, and Martin Luther's barber asked him one time, hey, can you teach me to pray? And Luther responds by writing like a 40-page letter, instructions on prayer. You can find it online. Just type Luther, Barber, prayer. You can find the whole thing. And in there, it's basically him saying, if you really want to learn how to pray, just sit with the Lord's Prayer. He writes, for to this day, I drink of the Lord's Prayer like a child. Drink and eat like an old man. I can never get enough of it. To me, it is the best of all prayers. My prayer for us in this four-week series is that we will learn to drink deeply from this prayer and feast upon it, and that it might propel us forward into being a people and a church that grow and deepen in prayer. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first four words in English, Our Father in Heaven. And before we jump into those, let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being a part of this church. I thank you that when you redeem us, you call us into relationship with you and one another. I thank you for your grace, which enables us to live lives of honesty. Honesty with others, honesty with ourselves. So Lord, I, I ask you this morning that through the power of your spirit, you would you would awaken a desire in us to talk with you more. That you would awaken in us a desire to live deeper lives. Less reactivity, more proactivity. Less independence, more dependence. And Lord, I know we're, we're in different places. Some people are suffering, some people are overwhelmed, some people are spiritually numb, others are stuck in sin. And I'm convinced that prayer, that talking with you is the first step towards the way out of all of those things. So stir our hearts. May we, as we study this prayer, may we learn more about prayer. But more than that, may you stir a desire in us to grow in prayer. We ask this knowing that you're eager to answer it. And so we ask it with boldness in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by showing you a painting. How many of you have seen this painting before? 
All of us. Everyone's seen it, right? This painting, it's entitled The Head of Christ, was painted by a man named Warner Salmon in 1940 in Chicago. And this is by far the most famous depiction of Jesus in all of human history. It's been reproduced over 500 million times. So it hangs in homes and churches. It's on prayer cards. It's in Bibles. Uh, it's on like lampshades and curtains. You think of it, and this image is on it. This image of Jesus, it's shaped probably hundreds of millions, if not over a billion people's understanding of what Jesus looked like. Now here's what's interesting, is in the early 2000s, a team of New Testament scholars, scientists from Britain, and some archaeologists in Israel got together and they said, what would the average Galilean look like who lived 2,000 years ago? We'll never know for sure, like on this side of eternity, what Jesus looks like, but what would the typical Jewish person look like? And so using something called forensic anthropology, um, which is you can study the bones. It's like CSI. I know that dates me. I don't know what the new one is, but uh, they, they were able to use that with computer technology. And so they sought to reconstruct the face of an average Galilean 2,000 years ago. And through this incredible technology, they were able to produce this face. Just looking at the records, the average Galilean in that day, man, was five feet, one inches tall, uh, one inch tall, and they weighed about 110 pounds on average. They would have dark hair, skin would be darker, uh, Jesus' skin was probably even darker because he spent most of his time outside as a carpenter. He probably looked older than he was uh, because of the kind of work that he was in. And so there you go. I want to be clear, that's not Jesus. But if we put them next to each other, we can be certain that Jesus looked a lot more like the guy on the left than the guy on the right. Like he certainly looked a lot more like a Galilean peasant than a Swedish model. Right? <laughs> that picture never made it into our homes, though. Like we don't hang that one around. And I know as we look at these two images that some of you are feeling a bit of unease or discomfort. Some of you are unsettled. And I get it. Like most of us, we have had an image of Jesus in our minds that is much closer to Solomon's painting than to reality. And we've seen Solomon's painting or variations or derivations of it throughout our lives. It's been ingrained in many of us. And so learning that his depiction is deeply flawed. Like, it's not kind of off. It's way off. That can be unsettling for us. Can stir some emotions in us. Can raise some questions. What other things have I gotten wrong? 
My question for you is, would you rather have the truth or a lie? Would you rather have what Jesus most certainly looked closer to, or would you rather continue with this wrong image of him? And I would argue that wrong images of Jesus and God the Father can have devastating consequences of it. We saw this eight days ago at a Walmart in El Paso. Manifesto written by the shooter. He identifies himself, I believe, as a white Christian nationalist. I've heard that phrase thrown around a lot recently, white Christian nationalism. And I have no idea or no doubt that there are white nationalists in our country who think they're Christians, but this is problematic for them because Jesus was not and is not, to this day, white. He's a brown-skinned man that white nationalists would despise. And if he was in that Walmart eight days ago, he would have been targeted by the gunman claiming the name, claiming his name. So I want to be clear, there's no place for white nationalism in the church. It's fundamentally at odds, not just with what Jesus taught, but who Jesus is. But I say all of this, we're going to get to prayer But I say this because there are often very real, very bad consequences when we cling to wrong ideas about Jesus and about God. And I'm not saying Solomon's responsible for those actions, but I'm sure it didn't help. And part of our journey is coming to know God for who he truly is, coming to know Jesus for who he truly is, and coming to know God the Father as he truly is. And I'm convinced that as we begin this year of prayer, the greatest obstacle we face in growing in prayer, it's not finding time in our schedules. It's not finding a quiet place in our homes. It's not even finding self-discipline, although I acknowledge those will all be challenges. I think the greatest challenge we face in growing in prayer is letting go of all of the wrong images we have of God. And I think the secret passageway into prayer is gaining a right, true image of who God is. Quote we use often here, A.W. Tozer, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I think Tozer overstates things a bit. I think what God thinks about us is much more important than what we think about him. But his point still stands. How we understand God, what comes into our minds when we think about God, will shape and color nearly every dimension of our lives. It will shape and color how we understand our lives, our circumstances. How we think about God shapes how we interpret and experience pain and suffering. I mean, if we think God is angry and mean, then all forms of suffering are God punishing us. How we think about God, more than anything, it it shapes how we pray and how we pray, I would argue, reveals so much about how we understand the character of God, his posture towards us. If we're very formal in prayer, timid, probably means we understand God as being formal and strict and fearsome. If we're super casual, like, hey, God, it might reveal that we have very little understanding of his majesty and holiness and greatness. If we don't pray, that reveals a lot, too. It might reveal how little thought we give to him 
or how little thought we think he gives to us. It might reveal that we think he's unconcerned with us. It might be driven by a fear of him. More than anything else in our lives, it's prayer where we learn what we really believe about God. And if our view is, of God is off, then prayer will be a drudgery, an obligation, a duty. It won't be a delight. It will be something that you feel obligated to do. It won't be something that you run to. And so getting this right is critical, I would argue, for getting prayer right. It's not just me. It's Jesus. Jesus is brilliant. No, we know that, but we need to state that. Jesus is brilliant. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's saying, they're asking, how should we pray? And Jesus says, I'll teach you how to pray. Here's how you start. Not almighty God. Not rock of ages. You start by saying, our Father in heaven. Now, in Jesus' day, sometimes people would refer to God as Father. He wasn't unique in that, but Jesus put a unique emphasis on the fatherhood of God. And when he teaches us how to pray, he teaches his disciples, can't be sure, but I imagine that when he says, Here, here's how you pray, pray our Father, they would have said, huh, no one's ever taught us to pray quite like that. I mean, they would have heard Jesus praying Father. He prayed Father a lot. It was his favorite way to reference God the Father was Father, but Jesus says, when you pray, you're going to say it too. We're going to say it together. And as one writer wrote, Jesus, about this, he says, Jesus is passing on something of his own priceless relationship with God to us. And really, he's foreshadowing the work that he's going to do on the cross. He's foreshadowing the incredible truth that through the cross, we get adopted into God's family. He's saying, this is what I've come to do. I've come to take you and bring you into the family. John 1.12, a very famous passage. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Eugene Peterson says that the greatest enemy of prayer is depersonalization. And what he means is the greatest enemy of prayer is when we reduce God to just a concept, when God becomes, you know, a cosmic blur in our minds or a spiritual force or a, a mystical emanation. He's just kind of out there. We don't know anything about him really. He says, that makes prayer really, really hard. And Jesus, in teaching us to pray, our Father, he's reminding us that our God is not a mystical force. He's a person. And there are contours to him. There are things that he is and things that he is not. There are things that he loves and things that he doesn't love. There are works that he's done and works that he opposes. And if you have received Christ, you've believed in his name, one of the undeniable truths is that God, your creator, becomes your father. Your protector, your provider. It doesn't matter what you do this week. It doesn't matter what you did last week or last year. This is unchangeable. It's been secured through the work of Jesus Christ. And I know for many of us, the word father can stir a lot of emotions, not all positive. And this is where we have to be very careful 
to interpret our own personal experiences of life in life through the lens of Scripture and not try to interpret Scripture through our experiences. What I mean is, if I say Father and you did word association, you had to write down 10 words, whatever those 10 words are, even if they're good, from your experience, you don't paste those on to God and say this is what God is like. The way we understand what Jesus meant when he says pray our Father is we open up God's word and we say, what does the word tell us about our Father? What do we learn about him here? Because God the Father becomes the gold standard of all fathers that all fathers are compared to. And when we open God's word, there's so many things. I'm just trying to think, how do I cover everything? I, I can't. What I can do, we just preached on the Sermon on the Mount, um, so it's familiar with a lot of us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us a number of things about our Father. I'm just going to tell you five. There's a whole lot more. But let me give you five. Number one, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that our Father provides for us. That he provides. He meets every need we have. Jesus says, look at the flowers, look at the birds. They're doing okay. You're doing okay. You don't need to worry. Last week, Dr. Pennington in his sermon he said he'd been following Jesus for 30-something years. I've been following Jesus for 20-something years now. And what he said resonated so deeply. God has never failed to provide for me, ever. Ever. He's provided differently at times than I expected. He hasn't answered every prayer that I've asked, thank goodness. Because a lot of times we ask for silly and dumb things. But he's never failed to provide. And Jesus is saying that shouldn't surprise you. He's your father. Of course he's going to provide for you. Second thing Jesus says, that he forgives us. He forgives us our sin and our foolishness. And he wants us to live a life of forgiveness in response to the forgiveness he's shown us. And so he doesn't hold grudges against us. He doesn't have this catalog of our sins that he loves to go back and read to fuel his anger or to read over us and condemn us. That like any good father, he's quick to forgive. And he's actually not surprised by our sin or our foolishness. You know, any parent worth their salt learns very quickly you stop being surprised when your kids do something dumb. It's just part of the, the deal. How much more with God? Is he not surprised by our sin? Number three, so he provides, he forgives. Number three, he's generous. So not only does he provide for us, like here's bread and water, he's generous. Jesus says that the Father loves to give good gifts to his children. All right, now that resonates with me because my love language is gift-giving. I love Christmas now more than ever in my life because I have five kids and I get more excited about Christmas than they ever will. And we pay for it in January and February and sometimes March. <laughs> but I love it. I love giving good gifts to my kids. And I, sometimes I give them gifts for no reason. Why did, why did you give me this? Because I wanted to. How much more does our Father give us good gifts? I'm convinced if we were given eyes to see and we actually looked at our lives and practiced gratitude, 
I don't care if you're single, if you're married, if you have kids, you don't have kids, if you're rich, if you're poor, I don't care. Every one of us, we can look at our lives, and if we took inventory of all of the gifts God has given us, it would overwhelm us. He has been so good to us. And yet most of us live with the suspicion that he's going to take away all the gifts that he's given us or take away some of the gifts. We live with the suspicion that he's not for us when everything we have comes from him. And Jesus is saying, no, he's so generous. Number four, he also rewards us. Jesus says again and again that the Father, when he sees what we do in secret, he rewards, that no good deed ever goes unnoticed by him. And some of you might be uncomfortable. I'm sorry, it's just what Jesus says over and over and over again. That the Father, he sees what other people don't see and he rewards. And then number five, last one I'll hold before you, is that he's intimately involved in our lives. Jesus sets up talking about prayer. He's saying two ways prayer go wrong, both rooted in a false understanding of who God is you have the hypocrites, the Pharisees, who turn prayer into a show for others because they think that God is up there with a scorecard keeping track of who's the most devout and religious. And he says, don't pray like them. And he says, don't pray like the pagans because they just babble on and on because they think, in their mind, their image of God is that God has to be pestered and begged and convinced to help. And Jesus says, don't pray like either of them for your Father knows what you need before you ask. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every detail of your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. He cares. He's involved. And so you put all those together. He provides. He forgives. He's generous. He rewards. He's involved. That's two chapters. You can't read the Sermon on the Mount and come away thinking that God is not for you. God is absolutely for his people, for his children. He's our father. And he's in heaven. The original language, I think translation could be read, he's in the heavens. And what this means, Jesus is teaching us that, yes, the father is close and he knows us. He provides, he protects for us. But he's also different than us. He's distinct. He's above us. For first century Jews in the heavens would conjure up images of God on the throne of the universe. And so they would pray, our father on the throne. The one who spoke the Atlantic Ocean into existence, the earth into existence, the Milky Way. The one who upholds it all by the word of his power. He's in heaven. He's mighty. He's strong. His ways are not our ways. He rules over all with wisdom and care, and yet one sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from his say-so. He's mighty as king, but he's father. One writer put it like this. He said, on the throne of the universe is a father. Yes, on the throne is a creator, a mighty creator. And yes, on the throne is a sovereign master, the rock of ages. But what Jesus emphasizes again and again is that on the throne is a father, his father. The father he knows and trusts. And so when that unnamed disciple came to Jesus saying, we don't get prayer, he says, first things first, let's talk about who you're praying to. He's our father, and he's in heaven. Because he's your father, you can come to him with boldness anytime. 
You can, you can just burst right in like little kids will do with their parents. Because he's in heaven, you can ask big things of him. You can make bold requests. You can pray, God, heal my marriage. God, heal my body. God, set me free from what I'm enslaved to. God, give me strength because this is too much and I don't know if I can make it. We can pray with boldness and ask for bold things because he's our father and he's heaven, in heaven. And so let me ask you, why would you not want to talk to him? <laughs> why is it hard to pray to him? I think Jesus, I don't think, I know, I mean, the reason Jesus lived a life devoted to prayer is because he knew who he was talking to. And so whatever he was going through, he felt this need, the desire, and the longing. I want to talk to dad about this. I want to ask for his input and his wisdom and his direction and his guidance and his strength. See, Jesus knew his father as he truly was. And so he lived a life of radical prayer. It's here where we get to what I believe is our single greatest problem with prayer. That just as there was this gap between what we think Jesus looks like over here and what Jesus actually, actually looks like, there's a gap. It's not a, a visual gap, maybe, or a, you know, an image. But I also think we have this idea of what God is like. And then there's the reality of what God is actually like. We all have this image of God, this perception, this impression of him, who we think he is, and then there's who he actually is, and there's a gap. And I think that one of the most important things of growing up in our faith, growing into maturity, is narrowing this gap. It's learning to come to know God as he truly is. And when I read... Some of the best books I read on prayer, those authors also tend to write books like The Life of the Beloved. And I'll be honest, the first time I read that book, I was 23 and not into it. I wanted to read about Jesus, the man's man, the carpenter. But what I found is that the people who write the most about prayer tend to write about the love of God because they've narrowed this gap significantly. Because they've started to see God for who he truly is for us in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to grow in prayer, we've got to do this work. If we don't do this work, the consequences will be drastic, not just for prayer, but in every dimension of our lives. And so let me ask you, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Word association, what words would you write down? Not word, what words should you write down, what words would you write down? If you're honest. Well, let me ask another question. It kind of gets to the same thing. What words do you think God would use to describe you? God's writing about you. What's he going to write? Probably reveals a lot about this gap between who he really is and, and who we think he is. And so part of the work of coming to know God as he truly is comes from, the primary work comes from opening his word and reading it. 
But part of the work, and this is work we often don't do in the church, also comes from knowing where our first images of God were formed and untangling those images from the truth that we get in his word. As human beings, we learn by analogy, we learn by comparison. That's like pretty much the only way we learn. When we encounter something new, the way we make sense of it is by comparing it to something we already know. So it can be one thing, and then we look at something else. I know this, and then we're kind of like, oh, that's what it is. It's just like this, and oftentimes it's not, but that's how we learn. We make comparisons. Well, we do that with all kinds of things in life, but I'm convinced that we do that with God as well. When we hear about God the Father, we immediately go to our own fathers and mothers. They've shaped us profoundly, good and bad. When you were a little kid, you know, as a parent now, I'm like, thought way too highly of my parents than I should have. But when you're a kid, your parents are almost like gods to you. They have such authority and power. They have such information that you don't have. They can make their thumb come off and come back on. <laughs> I'm serious. They're like gods to you. Close to it. And so when you think of God, who is the authority figure, your parents have shaped for good and bad, and parents were shaping our kids for good and bad, how they understand God. If, if you grew up, your mom or your dad were very strict, there's a good chance you probably think God is very strict, and a huge part of your spiritual journey is getting over that. If you grew up in a home where your parents were cold, you probably think God is cold. If you grew up in a home where your parents were pretty decent, but they were detached and they cared more about their jobs or their sports team than they cared about you, it's probably shaped your opinion of God. And so we've got to untangle that. But then it's not just our parents, it's also our early faith experiences too. If you went to a church that was cold and sterile, God's cold and sterile. If you went to a church that was really all about emotion, then God cares a lot about emotion. If you went to an angry church, God's angry. So you got your family experiences, your faith experiences, and then you've got all the rumors that you've heard in your life about God. I don't know about you, I've heard a lot of rumors. One of the first rumors I heard, I'm a kid of the 80s. I remember in elementary school, I can still remember where it happened. Talking about AIDS and hearing that AIDS was God's judgment on people for a sinful lifestyle. So very formative age. All right. So that goes in and it kind of twists how I think. All right. So our God, the God who created us, he's really, like, he, he likes to punish people. If you grew up later than me, if you were around in the 2000s, 9-11, that was God's punishment for us because we've walked away from him. Never mind the systemic and horrific sin that stains our country from its founding. <laughs> but somehow, 99, 2000, that's when God was like, okay, I'm all right with slavery and all this stuff, but now I can't put up with this anymore. And so he hurled some jetliners into towers that killed thousands of people. So we got that rumor in our mind. What other rumors have you heard? Then you've heard whispers. 
and you add all of these things together and you end up with a patchwork God. And if your patchwork God's like anything like my patchwork God that I've created in my mind, I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to pray, pray to him. I'm terrified of him. He seems easily provoked. Patchwork gods we create are almost always ones we want to keep at a distance. I'm convinced the reason Jesus tells us to pray our Father is because he knows the first step towards life-giving prayer is knowing the one you're praying to as he truly is. He's not distant, detached, unjust, unfair, abusive, cold, unconcerned. He's the very definition of love and justice and mercy and compassion, but also holiness and righteousness. He's our Father, and he's the standard by which all fathers are measured against. And in my own personal journey of coming to relearn who God actually is, being a dad has helped a lot. And I'm sinful. I've got my mistakes. But one of the things I love in July is just getting to be with my kids for a little bit more time because a lot of times during the year, six days a week that I'm gone, and I love getting extended time to be out with them. And my five kids and my wife, I love them more than anything on this earth. And they do dumb things. Uh, my kids, not my wife. Uh, she's here. She might too, but that's hers to tell. Um, when you spend them, you get to, like extended time, you kind of realize they do really, really dumb things. But my relationship with them never changes. My affection for them never changes. Sometimes my patience runs out because I'm sinful. Sometimes I raise my voice because they're going to run off the side of a waterfall. But they're standing. It never changes. And that's been very, very helpful for me in adapting some words of Jesus, playing with a little liberty. If, if I, who am evil and sinful, love my children like that, how much more does God love us as his children? You can ask, well, what about when I sin? Well, if you're like me, you probably sin a lot. And God loved you before you came to faith. God saved you because he loved you. And your sin was taken by Jesus, and it doesn't change the relationship. I think this is a finer point of theology, but it really matters. Jesus didn't die for us so that God the Father would love us someday. It wasn't like God the Father is like, I don't like them. And Jesus is like, please, just give me a chance. I don't like them. Get rid of them. And then he, okay, fine. Jesus died for us because God the Father loved us. And we know this because Paul tells us in Romans 8, if God is for us, who cannot be against us? He, he's talking about God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? God the Father gave up his son on the cross so that we might, I mean, in that same chapter, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's the plan, was to bring us in. So learning to pray our Father is committing to have, to grow, to have a healthy image of God.
Learning to pray our Father is committing to saying, I'm not going to let that patchwork God rule in my mind and my life. I'm going to go to your word. I'm going to go to you in prayer. And I'm going to trust what you say is true, not what I feel. So no matter where you're at in your walk, I'm convinced God, he wants us to know him in ways that right now we can only begin to imagine. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to give all kinds of practical helps to help you grow in prayer and encourage you. But I want to ask you, will you prayerfully consider stepping into this year with us? Not just showing up, but stepping in. You prayerfully consider, even this week, just learning to pray our Father in heaven. And I'll tell you, many times I don't get beyond that. I'll confess, I think you're a lot of other things. I need to be reminded you're my Father. I'll confess, these problems seem so big. I need to be reminded you're in heaven and you rule and you reign. Will you consider stepping in, embracing this healthy image of God, and deepening your life and your walk with him? As you think about that question, we come to the Lord's table, and everything I just said becomes visualized for us. Because the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's broken for you. I'm giving my life for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new promise. Cup of my blood that's going to be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the church throughout the ages, when we gather, we take part in the Lord's Supper because Jesus knows that we don't just need information, although we do, we need experiences. We need visual reminders because we're quick to forget. And so coming to the Lord's table is a reminder that our standing with God through Christ, if we've put our trust in him, it never changes. We're sons and daughters, and we can come and feast and celebrate. If you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to do that. If you have sins to confess, if you just need to talk to your father because you haven't talked to him in a long time, I'd encourage you to do that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ and who he came to bring you to, to the Father. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.